take your Bibles and turn with me to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. The passage that we're looking at this morning is from Exodus chapter 17, the first seven verses. I think you'll find it on page 59 if you'd like to use the red Bibles and the chairs around you. This is going to be the conclusion of our summer series that we've had in the seven deadly sins today. And we're coming to a very well-known passage, even if you didn't grow up uh, in the Bible or uh, learning the Bible growing up in church, you probably heard this story in some way and over time. It's good for us to reflect on it with fresh eyes today. We're going to be looking at Exodus 17 and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Let's pray together. Our Father, I pray that you would help us as we've been thinking about the significance and the depth and the breadth of our sin all summer. Indeed, as we consider that each Sunday as we gather, we also pray that you would remind us of your abundant and amazing grace. That as we see it, Father, we would not doubt that there is indeed grace that is greater than our sin. Nor would we doubt that you are with us when we are in the wilderness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was about 12 and a half years old, in 1983, my, one of my uncles uh, took me on a trip with him to Europe. We went to Germany and to France primarily. And the purpose of the trip was to visit various sites that were related to the Reformation. So we went to places and we uh, saw places where people lived and where various uh, events took place that were all related to the Reformation. Uh, but for some reason, I don't remember the rationale for all of this, but uh, for some reason we also stopped and visited one of the German concentration camps during World War II called Buchenwald. Uh, Buchenwald was near the city of Weimar, Germany, just outside the city. It was one of the first and one of the largest concentration camps uh, that the Nazis ran. And one of the things that Buchenwald is known for is the main entrance had a very 
uh, very high, uh, very austere metal gate. And in the, the, the top of that metal gate, right underneath the doors or above the doors that you would walk in, uh, there was a, a, a German statement that was embedded into the metal. And it translated to something like, to each his own. And that was kind of a catchphrase that was used, at least at that camp, maybe in other places as well, to have this sense that the Nazis were trying to create some kind of superior race and they believed that the superior race that they were creating had the right to do whatever they wanted to any other inferior race. And indeed, that's what they attempted to do at Buchenwald from 1938 to 1945. 233,380 people were imprisoned there, including, interestingly, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was there for a period of at least a month or two in February of 1945, shortly before he was executed. The records show that there were some 56,545 people who were believed to be executed during that seven-year time frame. If I did my math correctly, that's about 22 people every single day for seven years. They were executed by hanging, by shooting, by gassing, by being starved, by having medical experiments done on them, and some even just being worked to death. On April 11th, 1945... The U.S. Army 9th Armored Infantry Battalion arrived and liberated Buchenwald Camp. Dwight Eisenhower, who at that time was the supreme commander of the Allied forces, I'm not sure if he actually visited the camp shortly after it was liberated or if he simply saw the reports and even the pictures that were taken, the videos that were taken, said, nothing has ever shocked me as much as that sight. As the death camps all over Europe were liberated by the Allied forces, many eyewitness accounts began to emerge, not only of the prisoners that were rescued, but also by the liberating soldiers that arrived to, uh, to liberate those camps. And the stories over and over again told uh, a tale of seasoned and battle-hardened soldiers at the end of the war, toward the end of the war, seeing absolute overwhelming evil. In their midst, there are accounts of many of the soldiers becoming violently ill simply by walking into the camp and seeing what was happening there. Many of them took pictures and video because they believed nobody would believe what they were seeing. The reports also showed that as the liberating forces saw what was happening, they began to react. And on many occasions, including at Buchenwald and especially at Dachau, the Nazi guards who had surrendered were executed on the spot by the liberating forces. Now, on the one hand, we can understand, can't we? As the soldiers would arrive and they would see the evil and they would simply react, they would seek to bring justice in the moment on those who had brought that kind of devastation and evil into those places. And yet, on the other hand, we can also see how it was wrong for them to do that. It was unjust even. Some have even said that it was analogous to how the prisoners had been treated, simply not seeing them as humans, as inferior, not giving them trials. Instead, the soldiers acting as judge, jury, 
and executioners. And when injustice happens in our lives or in our worlds, we rightly get upset. Exodus 17 gives us a picture of a legal courtroom proceeding of unjust proceedings, unjust accusations, and unjust judgment and execution taking place. And through it, my prayer is this morning, the Holy Spirit will help us to see the wonder of the gospel. We're going to look this morning at the accusation and the trial, the judgment, and then try to figure out how this makes any difference for us today. The reason why I want us to look at this passage and to think about this today is that we've been spending the entire summer uh, looking at the historic seven deadly sins. Uh, Pride and envy and anger and sloth and greed and gluttony and lust. And one of the things that we have looked at throughout the summer is that if we're honest, if we're transparent, we know that if we were brought before a court of law and the evidence was laid open about our hearts, every single one of us could rightly be convicted of these sins. We are guilty before the Lord. And each week we have attempted to also see God's grace in the midst of our conviction and repentance of those sins as being the source of our forgiveness for even these deadly sins. But I recognize that it's very easy for us to come away from a summer series on the seven deadly sins simply with feelings of guilt and shame. And so I want us to finish this series this summer, once again coming back to this wonderful story of God's gospel of grace, the source of the forgiveness of our sins and the hope that we have in our lives. So in order to do that, let's look at the story as it unfolds for us in Exodus chapter 7. We begin by seeing the accusation as it is brought forward. In order to do that, really, you need to flip back a couple of chapters in Exodus just to remind yourself of the context. We are in this section of Exodus, kind of the middle section of Exodus. And in chapters 12 and following, we read about the people of God being led out of Egypt by Moses. They crossed the Red Sea in the, in the miracle that that was. God providing for them, God protecting them over and over and over again. And they are led out of Egypt across the Red Sea and into the wilderness. We read that they came to an area called Marah. And that was a place where the water was there, but it was a bitter water and they weren't able to drink it. And so they grumbled, they complained, they murmured against the Lord. The Lord showed them that he was with them by providing for them in that place. We read in chapter 16 that the people again were complaining because they wanted the bread and the meat that they remembered that they had access to back in Egypt. And they complained to the Lord And again, the Lord rained down bread and brought quail to them and provided for them once again. And then we come to chapter 17, verse 1, and we see that the people of God are still in the wilderness. They're still in the desert, and they have now come to a a place where they are camping called Rephidim. And literally that word means a resting place. 
which is an interesting irony given all that actually happens here in this location. It really is the last stop on their way to Mount Sinai before God will give them His Word and His governing of how they are to live their lives as His people. And we see the problem that comes up here at the end of verse 1. There is no water for the people to drink here in Rephidim. They're thirsty. And you can understand that, right? And so, no water... What do they begin to do? They respond in verses 2 and 3. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? The people are thirsty, they need water, they see no water around, and so we're told they begin to quarrel with Moses. They grumbled against him as their leader, as the representative of the Lord to the people. That word quarrel is a very interesting Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word reeb. It's a strong word, and it has the connotation of bringing a lawsuit against someone. So we read this and we hear that the people are thirsty. There's no water. And so they go to, to Moses to bring it to his attention and to, to quarrel with him. But that word is understood to mean that what the people were doing was bringing a lawsuit against Moses. They were revolting against his authority. This is, a, this is legal language that is taking place here. And we know how serious it was because at the end of verse 4, as Moses is complaining back to the Lord about this people that God had given him to oversee, he says, they are about ready to stone me. They're about ready to execute me. They're quarreling with Moses. But that's not really where the accusation lays. The accusation is not first and foremost or ultimately against Moses. The ultimately, the, the accusation is against the Lord himself. That's what Moses points out in verse 3. He says, why are you quarreling with me? I'm simply the representative, the spokesman, the one that the Lord is working through. In fact, you are quarreling with the Lord. Why are you testing the Lord, Moses says? Again, it says in verse 7, they tested the Lord. And that there is the Hebrew word nasah, which means to test or to try. Again, it's this legal language. In fact, it had the specific sense of a covenant lawsuit. Of people being in some kind of contractual relationship with one another. And one party believing that the other party had broken the agreement. The covenant. The people are testing they are quarreling they are bringing accusation against the lord and notice what they accused him of or questioned him of or tested him of the beginning of verse 2 they basically say we want you to give us what we think we need give us the water we read at the begin at the end of verse 3 they were questioning god's plan to bring them up out of egypt why did you do this why did you bring us up out of egypt if all you were going to do is bring us into this desert wilderness and then have us all die out of thirst and their accusation goes even further at the end of verse 7 we see what they were really questioning was whether god was even with them at all they were questioning the very word of god God had said, I will be with you. 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. You are my people. I am your God. Wherever you go, I will be there. And so by questioning, is God even with us? They are questioning the faithfulness of God to his promises and to his word. This is an accusation of the highest degree against the Lord. This is a lawsuit that the people of God are coming before Moses and ultimately before God himself saying, you are not providing for us, you are not protecting us, and you are not even present with us. You have broken the covenant relationship with us. And the irony is is that it was the exact opposite. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 95 says, Today, if you hear, hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as at the day at Massah in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. That's the accusation that's being brought, not simply against Moses, but against the Lord himself. We also see a picture here of a trial. We see that in verses 5 and the beginning of verse 6. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Now, how is this trial language? How is this a picture of a trial beginning to take place? Well, notice God commands Moses to assemble some of the elders. Now, that was a very common thing in the ancient cultures and even in Old Testament Israel as well. It was a gathering of the elders of the people who would hear cases and give judgment. It was a very common thing to do. And so that's one aspect here is what we see is that the, the judges are being assembled in a sense. But we also see it because of what Moses was told to bring with him. He was told to bring with him the staff or the rod. This was not just some kind of walking stick or a crutch that Moses used to get around. This is a reference to the very staff that God had given to Moses to be used during the exodus of the people of God to be led out of Egypt. We read about that earlier in Exodus. And in fact, the staff or the rod was used by Moses. He struck the Nile and the Nile turned to blood. And blood filled Egypt. It was one of the plagues that God brought. It was, in a sense, it was the judgment of God coming down on Pharaoh, on the people of Egypt, because they would not listen to God's command to allow his people to leave. So what we have here is a picture of the convening of a court. The judges are present. And now the rod, the staff of the judgment of God is present as well. The accusation has been given, it has been declared against God, but where is the accused? The judges are there, the, 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 the power of God's judgment is in place, the accusation has been made, but where is the accused? And we see where he is at the beginning of verse 6. Behold, God says, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. There's irony here going on. Some of you know your Bibles well enough to know what happened at Horeb. That's where Moses was brought before the very presence of God in the burning bush and given the task of leading the people of God out of Egypt. The ultimate judge, God himself, 
was on trial. Standing before the judges with the power, with the judgment of God, the staff, the rod of God's justice and God's judgment ready to be used. And God stands before them. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's book, God in the Dock. It's a book that was written in 1970, a collection of previously unpublished essays and speeches that Lewis had given. And I was always curious until I actually looked it up uh, years ago about what that term meant, God in the dock. That just wasn't a familiar term for me. Some of you are more familiar with kind of British terms and whatnot, which is what this is. The dock was a piece of furniture in a criminal court where the accused would sit. It It was a kind of box that they would sit in with an open top. And so Lewis's title was God in the Dock, God as the Accused, God on Trial. These essays are a reflection on modern people placing God on trial, seeking to act as judge over the ultimate creator and judge of the universe rather than seeing him as the right and true judge. In Exodus 17, we see the people of God putting God in the dock, instituting legal proceedings, holding God responsible. And it should be absolutely amazing to us that God allowed this to take place. He must have a reason to do so. And it's even more amazing when we see what happened next. Because we see the judgment that comes forward. Verse 6 again. Behold, God says, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. It's not insignificant there that the ESV has translated this passage that God said he would stand on the rock. Some of your translations may have different prepositions there, but it really is the word on And it's significant that that is what God is saying. He is standing on the rock. And then what do we read? Moses is instructed to bring the staff, the rod of God's justice and judgment, and to strike the rock, to bring it down on the accused. This is absolutely unbelievable and incredible. The rod should have been used to bring judgment and justice on the people of God who were accusing God of breaking the covenant relationship. But instead, God stands before the judges and has the rod of judgment brought down on himself. Can you imagine what the elders and what Moses must have been thinking as the scene unfolded? We're so thankful that the New Testament, Paul, actually unfolds us, unfolds for us, and helps us to make abundantly clear what is going on here. In 1 Corinthians 10, he refers back to the events taking place here in Exodus, and he specifically tells us that the rock is Christ. The rod of justice being brought down on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This whole scene that we have here in Exodus chapter 17 is the foreshadowing and pointing forward to the day when Christ would come and hang on a cross. And he would hear the voice of his father in heaven say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he would also say, it is. Is finished. 
the justice of God for the sin of my people in its entirety has fallen upon me and I have taken it all and it's finished. I heard recently about a play that I was not familiar with. It's a play called The Sign of Jonah. I actually got it this week. I thought it would be worthy of having it. It's not very long. It's a a short play. It's a play that was written by a a German Lutheran pastor, Gunter Rutenborn. It was published in 1960 in Germany. Not too long after World War II had completed Rutenborn and Germany and indeed the entirety of the world was struggling to understand how does the Holocaust happen? How does the world understand something like that happening? Who is to blame for it? Rudenborn wrote this play as a way of trying to work that, that, that question out. And so in the play, uh, there are a handful of people and they're brought forward at various times and having interactions with each other trying to understand how the Holocaust happened and who's, who is to blame for the unbelievable evil. And, and the play, as the play unfolds, each of the people start passing the buck. And it, it starts with the people at the bottom, and, and it couldn't be us, it was the people above us, and above us, and up and up and up it went. It wasn't the citizens, it was the soldiers, it wasn't the soldiers, it was the officers, and up and up the, the blame would be passed. And in the end, everybody ends up being accused and being blamed, some for what they did in actually bringing those events to pass, and some for what they failed to do in preventing those events from happening. And toward the end of the play, there's this great outcry of the people in front of the judge. We are to blame, yes, but we are not the most to blame. The real blame goes higher than us. God is the one to be blamed. God is the one who should rightly be on trial for these travesties. God is guilty of all that took place. And at the end of the play, the people accuse God. They find Him guilty. And then they pronounce their sentence of judgment on God. One by one, the various people of the play begin heaping on what the judgment should be. The judge asks, you have heard the accusations. I command you to inform God of the verdict. How shall we phrase it? God shall become a human being, a wanderer on the earth, deprived of his rights, homeless, hungry, thirsty, in constant fear of death. He should have to be born of a woman somewhere along a country road and the moans of other poor creatures shall ring in his ears day and night. He shall be surrounded by the feeble, the sick, the filthy, by people bearing marks of leprosy. Rotting corpses shall bar his path. He shall know what it means to die. He himself shall die. And he should have to lose a son and suffer the agonies of fatherhood. And when at last he dies... He shall be disgraced 
and ridiculed. It's exactly what God did. God sent His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world. He came among His people. People who treated Him like Israel wanted to treat Moses and the Lord Himself. Jesus had no home. He wandered the earth. He endured hunger and thirst. He was deprived of His rights. He was constantly surrounding Himself with the hurting and the needy. He was stripped. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was condemned. Condemned to die a disgraceful and unjust death. And what He did is the beauty of the Gospel. Jesus Christ took the judgment that we deserved on Himself and instead of giving the people the judgment that they deserved, He took it on Himself so that they could have life everlasting. So that we, as we put our faith in Him and believe and trust in Him, get the verdict not of guilty, but of not guilty and much Beloved. Exodus 17 shows us the wonder, the amazingness, the abundance of God's grace, the extent of God's love for His people, the extent of His forgiveness for sinners who deserve the exact opposite. So what do we do with all of this? Two things I want you to leave with today as you reflect on these verses, as you think about all that we are Experiencing by reading Exodus 17 this morning, the first is a reminder that God's grace is greater than even our deadly sins. We've spent this summer reflecting on these sins, which, as Paul reminded us in 1 Corinthians 10, are common to all of mankind. And it is easy as we reflect on the depth of what these sins mean and how It's not simply our outward actions that God is about, but even our inward hearts and thoughts that cause us to break these these sins and break God's commandments over and over again. And to feel a conviction about that and even some level of shame and guilt. And on the one hand, it is right for us to feel convicted of our sin, to own up to it and to take it before the Lord and confess it. But that conviction, if you are in Christ this morning, is meant to lead you once again back to your Savior. To the gospel of God's grace and mercy, to the forgiveness of your sins. The story of Exodus 17 brings us the reminder again of God's grace and forgiveness for repentant sinners like us. It's a reminder that in the midst of our conviction and shame and guilt, there is grace that is greater than your shame and your guilt and your sin. What incredible freedom there is for those in Christ this morning. Jesus took our verdict of guilt, bore the punishment and judgment we deserved, and now He looks at you and says, There is therefore now no condemnation. This is one of the things that shows us that Christianity is unique. There is no other world religion, no other false god like this. This is the only place, the only 
truth that shows us that we can truly receive relief from the burden of our sins. Every other religion, philosophy, and false god says you have to do something in order to make things right between you and your Creator. And God, the one true God, comes and says, I am going to take care of the problem myself. I will work redemption in your midst. I will take the judgment that is necessary to be had because of your sin. And you can have forgiveness and you can have the righteousness of Jesus Christ simply by putting your faith and trust and belief in me. Grace greater than our sin. There's a second thing that I want you to see as you leave today. And that is that this story shows us that God is with us in the desert. Exodus 17 reminds us that God faithfully provides for His people in the desert. You can see it at least a couple of ways here in this story. One way that's obvious is that the whole episode began how? The people arrived at Rephidim and they were thirsty, understandably so, and so they started asking for water to drink. And so what does God do in the midst of giving them them this incredible picture of what was coming with His Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the judgment being put on Him, and the wonder of the Gospel, God also provides water for them. Because as Moses struck the rock, what does it say? Water came out of it for the people to drink. God provided not only for their spiritual needs, He provided for their physical needs. And this is just one example of that happening over and over and over and over again. Not just in the desert, but wherever the people of God found themselves. But but we can see another way of how God shows them that He is in the desert. He not only provides them with the water that they need, He provides them with Himself. God is present with them in the desert. They doubted that that could be the case, as we read at the end of verse 7. Here are the people in a very dangerous and scary place, the wilderness, the desert, and they're wondering, they're doubting, is God among us? Is He with us? And He shows them in an amazing way that, yes, I am here in your midst. I am providing for you, I am protecting you, and I am fulfilling all of my covenant promises to you. But notice, he didn't do that by taking them out of the desert. God didn't remove them from the desert. He didn't remove their difficulties and trials. He simply went with them through them. It's a good reminder for us when we find ourselves in the wilderness. I know there are many of us in this room that consider ourselves in that desert, that wilderness right now. And how easy it is for us. Our, in fact, maybe even right to say our tendency is to evaluate God's presence in our midst, to evaluate God's care and His love and His blessings and His presence on our perception of our current circumstances. So we look around us and we see our circumstances and then we use that to evaluate, is God with me? When life is hard, when life is full of disappointments and things that we don't like, we are 
easily move to doubt and to despair and even to disobedience. Perhaps we could even find places in our lives when we tend to grumble and complain and quarrel against God, even bringing accusations against the faithful covenant-keeping God, maybe even tending to accuse Him and to blame Him. But this story reminds us God is with us. Exodus 17 wasn't some kind of unexpected turn that God was, wasn't expecting with the people of God. It was God's plan to bring them through this time of testing and this time of forming and shaping of them. God is not outside of, uh, He's not out of control. His plan hasn't been derailed. God is still at work. And the people of God are just as safe and secure in the desert as they are anywhere else. We're told many times in the scriptures that God takes his people through things to form and to shape them, to teach them, to trust him and to see his faithfulness. So brothers and sisters in Christ, as we go through periods and seasons of our life, even that may be long and hard, and it's hard for us to see the end of where this trial is coming, we see ourselves in the wilderness and we can't see the promised land. We must remember God is with us as much in those moments as when we think everything is going wonderful. We can't let the circumstances of our life Determine what we believe and know is true. The more that that truth sinks into us, perhaps the less quickly we will be moved to complain and quarrel and doubt and despair when the circumstances of life don't go as we expect or want. As we were singing Amazing Grace earlier, I was reminded of that truth that we all sang in verses 3 and 4. Through many dangers, toils and snares... I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will shield. He will my shield and portion be. As long as life endures. Let's pray together. Father, help us to believe your word, to believe what you say to us about who you are. We thank you that we now are able to stand on the shoulders of many spiritual fathers before us, including even the ones who experienced Exodus 17 as it actually happened. And we can learn and we can see not only how you have been faithful to them, but how you've been faithful to your people throughout generations and faithful to us as well. Help us to believe your promise to never leave us or forsake us. And even as we come to this table now, remind us once again by showing us your body, your blood given for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.